You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 57. This episode of the podcast is the first feature piece I've put together in partnership with the Women in Mining and Resources Queensland Networking Group. The Wimmark Board are eager to profile some of their members' women who are leaders and mentors within the mining industry, and I'm thrilled to be part of that. Today's guest is Jenny Purdy, and if we're talking about leadership and about someone who's been a mentor to many within the industry over a long period of time, there is no more fitting place to start than with Jenny Purdy. Today, Jenny is the CEO of resource giant Adani's renewable energy business in Australia. She sits poised to play a leading role in the conversation we're having nationally and internationally about energy use and production. And she sits in that position at a time that might very well be looked back upon historically as pivotal in our development as a civilization. We talk about Jenny's career making her way as a young engineer in the 1980s through an industry that was male-dominated in body and soul. She talks through her progress from on-site technical manager through to global leadership roles into the executive level and finally to the very top, chief executive officer. We talk about the significant steps, the evolution of an industry and making sense of it all from the great benefit of hindsight. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jenny Purdy. Jenny Purdy, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Hi, Dave. Good to be here. Jenny, I, of course, jumped online and did a bunch of research about you you sit in front of me as the CEO of the Australian business, a high-profile Australian business of a huge multinational company. And as I looked through your profile, all the jobs you have listed on LinkedIn, it seemed as though it was always heading in that direction. It seems as though all the things that you need to do to become a CEO fell in place for you during your career and looking backwards, joining the dots backwards, it all makes sense now. Is that how it feels in your role? In a strange way, I think you're right that I can look back and see that all the things I've done have helped prepare me for what I'm doing now. And in fact, in many ways, that also is true of my networks. Many of the people that I have got to know and worked with over the various roles that I've been in, I feel that with very many of those different groups of people, I've now got connections as well. But it makes sense looking back. But I I certainly don't think that it ever made sense <laughs> looking forward in that there's been many times in my career where I've thought, I'm not sure where I go next and, uh, and you know, what, where am I heading in this and, and where do I go from here? So it's certainly, it's one of those one of those examples, I think Steve Jobs talks about that you look back and it all makes sense, but at the time it can seem a bit can seem a bit confusing to, to work out what the right path is. It is a great quote, isn't it? That Steve Jobs quote about joining the dots backwards. It makes yes. so much sense. And it's funny to hear you say that 
often in your career, you didn't know what the next step was because when you look at it on paper, as I say, it looks as though you always had that plan. People often make that mistake, I think, about CEOs. They, they look at someone in your position and think, CEO of Adani, Australian renewable business, that is a, an enormous job. You must have always known what you were doing in your career, but you just admitted that you, you didn't and there were often crossroads. Let's have a look back a little bit at your career. Um, how many positions do you reckon you've got listed on LinkedIn? Be 10. 10, 14. Oh, 14. 14 positions. A classic resources or heavy industry career, it seems. Back in 1987, you started on the ground as a process engineer. Of course, your qualifications are you have a, uh, a Bachelor of Engineering in Chemicals and Materials and something I didn't know about you, Jenny, a PhD in engineering, 1990 to 93. You're Dr. Jenny Purdy. I didn't know that. You don't make anyone call you Dr. Jenny Purdy? Oh, look, I do list myself as that on airline tickets because I, I, I do sometimes think maybe I get a better seat that way. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I'm not, I'm not too concerned uh, about what people call me, Dave. But yeah, that is my um, official title, I suppose. Well, I didn't know that about you. Of course, you've been in my life to a certain extent for quite a while. You're a friend and mentor to my wife. I used to work for a consulting company that you were a client of, so I've known of you and known you for a while, but had no idea about that. So you're very modest about that. But as I was saying, you started on the ground, 1987, process engineer. You held roles such as research engineer, superintendent, technical manager, very operational roles. Then in 2005 came your first general manager role. That was with Alcoa at the Point Henry Smelter. Then, of course, series of GM roles, Rio Tinto, and that seemed to mark your move away from operation land. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's probably about right. I I did, yeah, I, I did, when I look at my career, I think I probably had three phases and the first was a technical phase. So the first 10 years of my career, I did mostly technical and some research and so some really quite technical roles. Then I moved into more more leadership operations roles, and there was a bit of back and forth there. But um, yes, from about 2008, I sort of moved out of the operations roles into the regional, some of the more strategy type roles, and um, and now into the executive management side of things. And that's what I'm, I'm really interested in talking about, those different phases through your career. Obviously, you started in operation land with some fairly serious qualifications, but on the smelter nonetheless, probably wearing the high-vis gear and starting work at 5.30 in the morning and doing your 12-hour days and all that kind of stuff. And then, as I say, there was this change, this, this obvious change in your career, lots of GM roles, lots of global roles with companies like Rio Tinto, even based in the UK at some point, you can't get any further than from a mine site than based in London. And then after seven years with Rio, you moved to Horizon as the executive vice president. What I'm really interested in from a career point of view is the way that you view the difference between those technical roles and then the senior management stuff, the stuff that gets you off-site as a general manager. And then I'm really interested in what's the difference between being that very senior manager, a general manager role, and an executive? Help me understand what this leap to being an executive is all about. I think the operational roles that I've done, middle management and senior site management, they can be quite broad, but they're very much focused on, I guess, business as usual, keeping keeping things going. You know, safety is obviously absolutely critical in all of those roles, looking after people, environmental performance, costs, 
production community, but it's all very much in the realm of the part of the business that you're accountable for. There certainly is a strategy component, but you know when you're running an aluminium smelter in Geelong, there's a limit to what you, what you're going to do with that business. It's always going to be an aluminium smelter in Geelong. And similarly, if you're running a mine, really the strategy needs to be around around that mine. So it's it's tweaks. It can be significant in terms of perhaps capital expenditure, perhaps expansion. All those sorts of things could come into it. But basically, it is quite constrained in that sense. And it's very much focused on doing what you're doing as well as you possibly can, operational excellence, those sorts of things. I think what I realised moving out of those roles and into my first regional role here in Brisbane where I was looking across part of a business was just the more of the breadth of what is required to run a business. And then when I was in London, then my eyes were really open to you know, what is it that a global mining business really thinks about? And you've got all these assets on the ground and, and they're obviously really important, but you know, how do you grow? How do you think about what other sectors of the, of the business you should be in? How do you look at what's happening globally and, and think about where you should be investing and what you should be divesting from? Some of the other considerations in terms of international um, stakeholder relations, even things like treasury where are you going to get your funds from for these various things and how do the, the international markets make that easier or harder? These are all things that when you're running a, a business in Geelong, you don't never occurs you don't think to about you. That so stuff. they're not they're not issues. So it's really interesting, I think, to consider those various types of, of roles and the different views of the business. And I think the truth is that they all come together to make the business successful and you've got to have those operational businesses running extremely well. But uh, somewhere else has to be thinking about the bigger picture. And it's so it's been, um, I think, very useful to me to have had that deep operational experience to now be looking at a role that is much broader in terms of the opportunities for um, different strategies, but to be aware of the, the need to have a really sound operational base underpinning it. So I love that description. The technical operational role is all about business as usual, making the plant or the smelter run really well, making money for the company. You're thinking about operational excellence for sure as how can we do stuff better? But there's, of course, a limit to what can change because you will always be, as you say, a smelter in Geelong, if that's what you are. The move to the regional senior management roles, and I think you're talking the GM kind of stuff and the global positions you you held largely at Rio Tinto, is more about thinking globally. How does the business fit into the, the industry, the future, how things are changing, your relationships, across the region and across the world, what you should be investing, divesting in, get that. That's a strategic role and your, your thoughts must be strategic. What's the difference then when you move into this, this executive sphere? Because there are a lot of people thinking, as you just described, in that strategic role. What's the executive difference? I think it's a degree of removal from the everyday operations and thinking very much about the future and stakeholders and so I think that's the difference uh, that, again, the GM roles that I've been in have focused on existing assets, you know, preparing those, but really, you know, looking at a portfolio of assets, thinking about where those might go. I think the executive role, there's the breadth of focus and the need to be looking a number of years more out. So I think there's, you know, as you progress through various levels of the organisation, your focus will change from very much, you know, short term what's happening today to what's happening over the next few months to 
to what's happening over the next couple of years. But in an executive role, you really are thinking about building a business for for a number of years to come, I think. So, and it's it's much more outward focused, and that means that doesn't mean you don't have to focus. You clearly have to focus on what's happening today. You have to understand the current state in your business and ensure that that you value and and reinforce the things that are making that business sound. So, so it's there's. There has to be a really strong connection still to the current state, but your focus really needs to be on. So, what are we going to do to be successful? You know, for you know, at least five years' time, it's, it, you've got to be looking at least that far out, I believe. So, I, th- I think that's the main difference, and it's it's increasingly externally focused because when you're looking at those sorts of questions, obviously the competencies of your business, the performance of your business, the way the business is what running today is obviously critical because if you don't succeed right now then you can't be thinking about the next five years. But you've got to realise that other people are thinking about keeping the business successful now. So so what is what is happening in the world externally in terms of the markets, the economy, government policy, your industry that will give you the signposts for how you're going to win in that environment in the next you know five years plus. So to me, that I think is the biggest difference from what I've experienced. I love that delineation between those three levels that you've just explained for me. It's it's really clear, and I've never thought about it that clearly. Very nicely done. You are now the CEO of Adani's Australian Renewables business. That's a pretty high-profile role. It's a high-profile company, especially right now and probably especially here in Queensland. What's surprised you most since you've taken on that role about the things that are expected of you? I think it's probably the the reality of realizing how much the role needs to be outward facing how important it is in an industry like the energy industry and the renewable energy industry to be engaging with stakeholders people who are influencing policy people in the industry and it's it's not it's not so much a surprise intellectually because i know that's what the roles need to do but it is it just when I think about what I do on a daily basis, the amount of time that I'm spending meeting people, thinking about what's happening in the industry, thinking about trends, thinking about you know what's changing, you know it's it's so important to have you know a really good team who are thinking about actually doing what needs to happen now because because I need to be you know with their support and with other people's support, making sure that we're doing the thinking about positioning ourselves and our strategy and so on. So it's just a shift in in the work, I suppose, is is what's what's the biggest difference. So you need to have a team that you can trust to do what's going on today so you can do your role, which is to think about the future because that's predominantly, and to to be outward facing from the organisation because that's the role of the CEO. Yeah, look, I I think that's right. And I guess just to sort of bring it down to a more tangible level. So so what we're doing as a renewables business, like any other renewables business in Australia, is that we're we're seeking to find opportunities to construct renewable energy projects. And so obviously to make that work, we've got to have people looking at, you know, where are the sites, how do we get approvals, how do we build those plants, and then the actual execution of them, you know, how do we connect to the grid, how do we all of that stuff needs to happen. And then we've got to make sure we're selling, we're developing relationships with customers. So we've got someone to sell the electricity to. So there's that piece. And so we we have to have, and we, we do have now in the business, some really sound and, and you know, capable and, and, you know, great people doing those pieces of work. But my role is to think, so where do we build those plants? What plants do we build? Should we build our own plants or should we, should we be buying plants that are developed from other people? Where's all this energy going to fit? You know, how's it all going to work? Because the industry is so 
so turbulent and, dy- and dynamic and exciting that if all we think about we build all these projects, you know, there may not be a customer for them. So we could do a great job of building a, a low-cost renewable generator and not have a anyone to sell the electricity to. So it's it's just making sure that I guess it's it's not just doing things really well, it's doing the right things. And that's probably the key piece. It must be really exciting to be at the forefront, the CEO of one of the largest renewable companies working in Australia at a time when all eyes in the world are on what the energy industry is going to do about shifting to renewables. When the history is written about Australia's transition, you could be one of the names that's played a key role in how that plays out. That's true, isn't it? And, and that's that's why the industry is so exciting. And you know, when you when you think about when I think about what motivates me to do this role, I believe you know passionately that that energy is really important for our for our society, for our economy, for community well being. If we have reliable, secure, affordable energy, we're so much better as a place to be than if we don't. And I think Australians perhaps have lost sight of that over the years because we we haven't had to worry about it. And then, you know, because of what's happened in uh, different communities and, and different states over the last couple of years, people have become more aware of that. And I think we are at a very interesting phase in our development. I think the changes in the industry are transformational. There's been a lot of discussion around how things may change for consumers with very much a focus on domestic consumers. I think some of the questions we need to be asking ourselves are firstly, how do we make sure that our energy system continues to work for everybody? And we actually effectively have a socialised system at the moment in Australia. And as people invest more in their own energy security in their homes, the risk is that we go away from that and therefore energy becomes less affordable for people who, who don't have the resources to construct their own systems at home. And energy potentially, the social system potentially could degrade and, and we could have the same discussions around private and public energy as we do about private and public health, private and public education. So I think we need to be really aware of that. So I think that's one really interesting dimension. You know what, that's a dimension I've never thought about. I love the idea of every, everyone having solar panels on their roof, especially here in Queensland. I mean, it seems crazy that we don't have solar panels on every roof. But as you say, if people, more and more people are moving off the grid and having private, relying on private energy, then Fewer people are contributing to the grid, to the public system, and that could degrade the quality. I've never thought about it that way. That's fascinating. Jenny, do you sleep better at night now working in the renewables energy sector than you did when you were working for companies that are digging fossil fuels out of the ground? No, I don't. And and I don't, I guess I don't have a view about the morality of the different forms of energy. I don't subscribe to the view that renewable energy is good and other forms of energy are bad. And I think that, you know, to the extent that people want to see things that way, it's it's not a balanced view. I mean, I, th- I think we need two things. I think we need to be aware, first of all, that any technology has an environmental and a social footprint. And one of the things that I've been keen to understand as I've um, started to move into the renewable sector is, you know, what is the life cycle environmental impact of the solar industry. You know, what are the materials that we use? What are the supply chains that we use? How can we make sure that we're doing the right thing by the environments and the people involved in that supply chain? Obviously, with um, manufacture of silica and silicon to a large extent in developing countries, obviously with our 
Our module is largely coming from developing countries. You know, there's opportunities for that not to be right. So I think we need to be very mindful that there are this potential for poor environmental performance in our industry as well. Similarly, I think with the uh, the fossil fuel industry, that those are resources that we that we have in this country, and we should be seeking to use them responsibly. So um, I don't believe it's good or bad. I think it's it's around what is the right mix. And I think you know, a, as we look forward and think about what should be the mix, I think the thought process we need to go through needs to start with what sort of what sort of economy and what sort of society do we want to have in the future? What are the industries we want to see? In Queensland and more broadly in Australia in the future, and then what is the energy price and energy, I guess, the type of energy that will make those industries successful and will be affordable, reliable, and secure for those industries? And then we need to come back and say, now what is the mix that we can give to those industries, and how can we do that with the minimum impact on the environment, with as low emissions as possible? And think about it that way, because I think if we go from the perspective that we're thinking about we want to have a renewable energy focus, we're putting the wrong thing first. We should be thinking about the an energy as an enabler. Energy is something that makes our lives better, that supports economic growth, that supports community well-being, that gives people opportunities. And think about it in that sense and then move back to what are the different types of energy that are enablers. So I think um, what I sleep well at night, well, what helps me sleep well at night is when I think that I'm working for an industry that is doing the best thing that it can to operate in a way that that is good for all its stakeholders. So good for the people that work in it in terms of providing a safe, you know, safe and good environment for them to work in. That is a a good business in terms of its shareholders, in terms of its broader stakeholders, and in, t- in terms of the community. And I think if you're doing as as well as you can in those in those areas, seeking to improve all the time, meeting a community need, then I think as a leader, I feel good about being part of that business. We, uh, as I say. At this crucial time in in our choices around energy in Queensland, especially in Australia generally, and of course across the world, and you playing a key role in that in in your role, I would love to talk about the interaction between your industry and your role and politics and the different parties and the different characters who exist. But I don't think this is the right forum for that. But that would be a fascinating conversation to have one day, Jenny. But we're talking more about your role your position in the industry and your development as a leader, I am intrigued because I've never had a CEO on this show before. There's been a, a lot of cool people have sat in that chair right there, but never before a CEO. I am intrigued about the process that gets you the badge of a CEO. I'm sure it wasn't one quick interview with someone over coffee one day. I'm sure there was quite a process. Can you give us a little insight into how that selection process comes about? compared to what you experienced earlier in your career and in senior management roles? There's probably not a lot I can tell you about the process, Dave, other than to say that... Is that because it's a secret or because it's not interesting? <laughs> oh, because in this case, I guess it was um, it was probably like it was just being over coffee, Dave. Oh, <laughs> so you're... <laughs> I mean, don't talk about that. Oh, okay, really? Okay. <laughs> probably what I can say about being successful in seeking out and and finding new roles that you want. I think things that are important, one is to um, be really clear in your own mind what you're looking for, what are the values of a company that you want to work in, and what is your value proposition to offer that company. And the other thing is that it is true when people say that most roles that you are interested in will come come to you through your networks. So the formal process 
particularly at senior levels, the formal process in terms of applying for roles, I think is, you know, is very much less likely to be productive when you're at senior levels than it would be in more junior levels. Certainly quite often when roles are advertised, particularly in public service applications that I've that I've become aware of, often there's there's candidates internally for those roles already at senior level and they're going through the process. Surely if they find a really strong candidate, they'll look at that person. But you know, often you won't get a role from from that process. And and that's you know that's increasingly common with other roles as well that uh, the roles are out there but they may not be filled. Similarly, the role that you may go into may not be a role that was actively being recruited for. So it can be increasingly opportunistic. And I think you need to be focusing on your networks. You need to be working working to meet the people that you think might be employing the roles that you that you're interested in. And also you need to be thinking about who are the the influencers, who are the people that know and meet a lot of the the decision makers in industry and might be someone who might recommend you to those people. So I think those are some of the things that you can do to look for the roles that you want in different industries. But more than that, I also think it's about being authentic and being who you are with everyone that you meet because, you know, who knows who is the person that might introduce you or recommend you to somebody who's seeking to fill a role that you didn't even know existed. So I guess what goes around comes around and being yourself and being being true to yourself and being a good leader in all contexts, I do believe does does help to make those opportunities come about as well. You know, a lot of people who'll be listening to this are very ambitious, a lot of young ladies from the, your networks who'll be thinking, I want to do that one day. I want to be GM, global role, CEO. And they're imagining all these amazing steps you've got to take, but you've just brought us back down to ground and reminded us that even at the the most senior levels, it's about the basics. It's about knowing who you are, what you offer, and having a really strong network. And even the more senior you go, the less structured the recruitment process because it's so much about networks and getting the right person and having insight into the people that you're talking about. I find that really interesting. You talked about ensuring that you're okay with the values of the company, that they're aligned with yours and that you know what you offer, the value you bring to that organization. What value do you bring to Adani? Why did they choose you, Jenny Purdy? The specific background that Adani were looking for in this role was customer focus. So in customer focus, as in coming out of industries that are large energy users, our um, strategy in, in the renewables business at Adani is to target selling our our energy to large industrial consumers and providing solutions to those industries in terms of energy mix. So it was important to have somebody in the role who understood what large industries needed, uh, what does the mining industry need, what does aluminium smelting need, because those are amongst the sort of customers that we would hope to to work with. So that was important. And it was important to Adani because of Adani's broad interests in the energy sector. And as you know, not being just a renewables business, but being an energy infrastructure more broadly with thermal thermal power interests in India and obviously the mine port rail project here in Australia, not to have somebody who who saw those parts of the industry as being undesirable, but someone who who had the the view that Adani holds about an energy mix. So that was, I think, in terms of the skills that I bring, what um, what they were looking for. And I think then somebody who fits with the Adani culture, which is entrepreneurial, making things happening happen, 
delivering results, but also very inclusive. So it's very much around engaging with people, enabling the whole team to make a contribution to what we do. So Adani, it's a young company. It's come from nowhere in 25 years. So it's got there by engaging and empowering its people to make a contribution and to to feel connected to the business at at low, even in the lower roles and the lower levels of the company, to feel that they have a contribution to make and that they can make that contribution right, you know, right through the company and, and you know, connect with the most senior people in the company and make suggestions. So that inclusive style is something that's really important to Adani. And, and that's, I guess, in terms of the the way that I lead, that focus on getting things done, but also engaging teams is something that's important to me. So I think there was a good fit there as well. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. I'm talking to Jenny Purdy, the CEO of Adani's Renewable Business here in Australia, and we're doing this as part of a profiling series for the Women in Mining and Resources Queensland organization. Jenny, when I think leadership and when I talk to leadership to my clients and within workshops, I talk about that journey that you're on. We all start with a technical skill and then at some point we're in management roles and we start growing our leadership skills and our awareness. And then there's this magical point in your career. It comes at different times for different people where all of a sudden you realize that technical competence that got you in the industry to start with is no longer your core skill. Your core skill at some point has become leadership. When did that happen for you? Dave, I can actually tell you of a a discussion or an incident that sticks in my mind when I got interested in leadership. And I remember I was I was working in, in Gladstone at a smelter and I remember there was some some problems, some issues with some of the pots on one of the pot line and that some of the technical parameters showed that we had problems with those particular cells. And I remember sitting in my office reasonably late one one night for a for operation in tropical Queensland where you normally go home at four and sitting looking in the computer and going, I've got it, I can see what's going wrong and I know what we need to change technically to fix this problem. And the superintendent of that line coming past my office and I said, Graham, come in. I've just seen what's what the problem is with these pots. Look, this is the data. This is what's happening. This is what we need to do technically to fix this problem. And I remember Graham, who was a who was a very good leader, He'd come up off the floor. He'd been an operator himself. He'd been a supervisor. Now he was a superintendent. And I remember him saying to me, this is not a technical problem. I know what they're doing and I'll fix it for you. And so by looking at the data that I had presented, he had realized that it was actually an operational standards issue that, that some of the operators were, were not, not doing what they should be doing in terms of operating those cells. And he understood what the problem was and he could see it as a, as a leadership problem in terms of Team members following the right standard. Issue. It was a behavioural issue, exactly. And when you think about operating in a smelter in Queensland in the summer, when it's extremely hot, it's 60 to 70 degrees uh, where the guys are working, you can understand why people would be tempted to take shortcuts and get back to the mm, crib room and cool indeed. down. And when I've done those roles on the floor myself, I've actually had that first-hand experience around why leadership and supervision is so important in those roles to encourage people to do things to the right standard because the whole our whole human nature is, is encouraging us to get out of that environment as fast as we can. So, so that, that was, I guess, an instrumental moment for me where I, where I realised that my ability to pull the data together was, was useful, but the real issue was a leadership people issue. 
And that was what made me think I can do so much with the technical side, but actually I could do a lot more if I got involved in this leadership thing. So that was that's something that sticks in my mind as a as a key moment. You've spent your whole career in industries that are traditionally dominated by men. And I know that your role as a woman in those industries, as a leader in those industries, and a mentor to other women. You've been a mentor to people like my wife, a mentor and friend for many years. You're involved in in the women in mining and, and resources in Queensland organization. But were there women who could act as mentors for you when you began your career? I can't think of many mentors and women mentors that I had early in my career. And I think that's because as a young graduate, you just I certainly didn't realize why things might be more difficult for me than they were for the men that I was working with. And I guess I I had always been successful at, at school, at university, and I couldn't see any reason why my gender was going to present any barriers to me at all. So so I don't think I looked for mentoring in those those really early years. I certainly had lots of lots of women who were friends of mine and there were more senior women, but I guess I didn't really sense a need because I, I didn't see what perhaps were some of the barriers. But, you know, it, it was a very different industry then. And as I was as I was saying to you earlier, Dave, I mean, it was very much this is the industry how it is. And if you don't like it, then we're not going to change for you. And I remember the the first role I was in, you know, walking down to the maintenance supervisor's office and opening the door and, and the offices were there was not a there was not an inch of, of vacant wall space, pinups from floor to ceiling, you know. And I, yeah, I and I just calendars. Yeah, type stuff. yeah, exactly. And I just knew that that it was not appropriate to question that. So there's all these messages everywhere that you don't belong here. But I probably wasn't aware of the impact that was having on me in terms of my confidence in the industry. So, you know, I, I did fine in those roles. I, I wasn't a, an out um, out and out, you know, huge success uh, story. But I never looked at the environment and the way that things were around me and said, you know, this is a factor. I just said, well, I've got to work harder or I've, you know, <laughs> got to do better sort of was my approach so um, when things didn't go my way. You walk into a superintendent's office, see it covered head to floor to ceiling in nudie posters, and your impression was, it's not my role to question this. That's 1987, Jenny Purdy. What does 2017 Jenny Purdy think of that image? And, and with that question, how much has the industry changed? The industry's changed completely in its, in its approach, and it needed to, I think, in that certainly when I was a GM at, at Point Henry, and in my roles as middle managers in other, you know, even in 1997, we'd got past the point of it's okay to have this in your locker and we got to the point of if I see this on site, you've got a problem and the person who brought it had the problem, not the person who complained about it because we just got to the point where we, we realised that, that we needed to make the workplace uh, welcoming for everybody and, and everybody needed to, needed to feel comfortable there and, and any overt signs that might trigger people feeling that they didn't belong, just didn't, they were the ones we needed to get rid of. So it, it came very much down, I think in those sort of 10, 15 years, there was a real change between people seeing it as a problem for the person who didn't like it. And perhaps if you don't like it, you don't belong. So just find somewhere else to work to actually know we want to have this as a safe place for everybody. And therefore we need to, we need to deal with some of these things. So that change came quickly from 87 to about 97, as you describe it, where by 97, the problem was with the person who had the poster, not with the person who was upset about the poster. So then what has progressed? That was a big progression in those 10 or so years. And what about the 20 years since 97? 
How has the industry progressed since then? Is it easier, harder, indifferent for women? Has it got to the point where a, f- a female's career in the mining sector, for example, will have exactly the same trajectory as a male of equivalent talent in the same industry? I don't think we're we're there yet. I do think very many companies are trying very hard. I think that in most businesses that I've been part of or or seen, we're past debating the business case for diversity. I know when I when I was early in my career and people would talk about getting more women in the workforce, there was never a suggestion that it was part of the business case. It was always a view that it was kind of a nice thing to do and we should do it and it was the right thing to do to give these people a chance. And I remember in 2000 2000- give them a turn. <laughs> well, give them a go because they need some help and you know and and if we can um if we can help them enough they might act more like men and then that'd be better for everybody, you know. And I think I think we're well and truly past that to the point in 2003 I remember I was working with Alcoa and I was part of the Alcoa Global Women's Network. And in that context I first saw some of the research from Catalyst that talked about businesses that had diverse leadership teams and diverse boards performing better. And I had never seen that before. And it was a huge thing for me to realize that what I intrinsically believed was the right thing to do also was going to be better for the business. So you weren't actually competing the right thing versus the business. You were actually saying, if we can get these things, what one will cause the other. And I'd never seen that before. And in fact, I was in a, in a session recently where people were presenting the business case for diversity. And I remember saying to people, why are we still talking about this? This, that this was is, decided this, years this ago. This is over. This, this, this is 15 years ago that we had this debate. It's been, you know, so, so I think that's been a big, a huge change. Yeah. And the change, the issues now, I think, are more around what are the best ways to enable women to participate in all roles in industry fully. And not any more about whether we want them to, but more how do we make that happen. And I think we've got we get tied up in these debates about targets and affirmative programs and all of those things. And I think those are all important to an extent. I actually think the biggest thing for me anyway is once we recognise we want diversity and once we enable enough diverse talent that people don't feel that they're on their own anymore, I think it actually then becomes inclusion. And then it comes basically back to good leadership. And how do you lead your team in a way that engages everybody, makes it safe for everybody to be themselves in the workplace, to contribute their ideas and to to be their best. And I think when we can do that, it is so liberating and it is so beneficial to productivity. I had it explained to me recently in terms of the neurology of it and in terms of when people are are frightened and feel unsafe, there's the there's the amygdala that they're working from, and and so they they can't be creative. But if you can you can get them out of that situation of fear, they can then use their their frontal cortex, and and therefore they can be be creative. And and certainly I know in my case that when I'm in an environment where I'm not always worried about whether I'll say the wrong thing, whether someone will get abusive or angry at me for making a comment that they don't like, to where I know that as long as I'm speaking in a constructive way and making suggestions, people will welcome those and and. You know, react to them positively. Suddenly, that whole that the stress of the workplace is reduced, and my ability to be creative and perform my best is is increased. So, 
I think more and more it becomes around how do we create those environments in our teams? How do all of us as leaders do that for our teams? It's harder because we all want people who agree with us. We all don't want the person coming with an idea from left field when we've almost got to a got to a resolution with the team. But how do we make that safe for people? How do we run a you know a, a fifteen minute stand up meeting and yet engage the person who wants to talk about a topic that the rest of the team is is not wanting to talk about? But we want that person to be engaged and we need to include them in the discussion. So that's the challenge for all of us as leaders. And then I think this whole diversity and inclusion thing becomes a value proposition for everybody in the team, not just the women. We want them to be engaged, of course, and we want their ideas, even how, uh, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. A few episodes ago, I had Fabian Datner. I think it was episode 49. Fabian is a, a leadership activist, she describes herself. And she was very clear about why women should rule the world. Women are, there are, there are four things that we know women are better at than men. Women are predisposed to collaboration. They are by nature more inclusive. They are more attuned to a legacy mindset, so what they're leaving behind, and they can be better trusted with public and common assets, says Fabian about the research. So I would hope that our conversation has progressed somewhat since 1997 and we have a more inclusive society, not just a business community, because we want the best results. When you work with groups like this, the Women in Mining and Resources in Queensland, do you look at these these young female professionals and think, God, you've got it easy compared to what I had to go through? Actually, no, I've never thought that. I've never thought that because, you know, everybody everybody's life has a story. Everybody has their own challenges. And I, no, I've, I've honestly never thought that. <laughs> but now that you've said it, yeah, they have, they have. <laughs> no, look, I, I think there's different challenges. Certainly for for women who are wanting to get into the sector these days, there's, there's a huge amount of encouragement, but that was there 20 years ago at least anyway. Um, you know, the forward-thinking businesses wanted to get more women there. I think some of the programs that support that are certainly stronger, but also there's a weight of expectation there. So, no, I don't necessarily think it's harder or easier. And I don't, I try not to think about whether it's harder or easier for men either, because I know that in the current context, there's at times there's a backlash and, and males in the industry feel that it may be harder for them to get roles because there is such an emphasis on diverse talent. And if they're, if they're a white, you know, Caucasian male from an Australian background, it may be hard for them to get a role. So I, I, I don't think about it that way. I just, I, I focus more, I guess, on uh, we want everyone to, to bring their whole self to work, to contribute, to be engaged. And we've got to make sure that in our quest to encourage diversity, we don't disengage anybody in our teams. So, of course, throughout this career that we've spoken about that has started on the ground in the smelters and, and has seen you today land a, a high-profile role as a CEO, you've had a personal life all this time and, and you have a life outside of all of that we've been talking about. How does your life balance through a career like this and how does it continue to balance? How does your career shape your personal life or impact your personal life or vice versa? What have you noticed as time's gone on? I think the the first thing that I would say is that having a personal life and having a life outside of work becomes increasingly important in senior roles, I believe, to do those roles well. People who think that they can they can be more productive and do more in the business by by working, you know, ridiculous hours and pushing themselves and so on, I think are blind to the fact that we all we all perform better when we're um, looking after ourselves, and that means looking after our, you know, our emotional and spiritual 
and physical well-being as well as our intellectual and our career achievements. And so I think it's increasingly important in all roles, but in more senior roles, to look after yourself, to to try and maintain that balance, to have a life outside of work. And I also think that certainly in my case, having a family life, having having children has made me much more empathetic, much more understanding of the challenges people have in their lives, and much more able to identify with people and to care about people than perhaps I, I could do when when I was I was single and when I um, was very very much you know focused on on my career as the main thing in my life before I before I had a family and therefore not intentionally but probably in the way I came across and perhaps in the way I also felt I was perhaps more sympathetic less sympathetic with people who who had those competing needs and were, try, were trying to make sure that they did the right thing by all the roles in their life. Things have worked out pretty well for you career wise and family wise, but if you could. Go back to 1987 and give one piece of advice to young Jenny Purdy. What would that piece of advice be? I think I'd say believe in yourself. I think it's very easy for all of us to doubt ourselves, not to have confidence in our own abilities, to when things don't go our way, to think, you know, I'm not trying hard enough, <laughs> I'm not good enough. I just think it's around self-belief and knowing that the best that I can do will always be good enough and it's about finding that role where I where I can do my best work in the right environment. That's a great answer. Jenny, you're just about to get let off the hook. I always end with the same four questions, though, to each of my guests. Are you ready for the last four questions? I sure am. All right. Think about the Saturday night you would most look forward to. Would it be a big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? I'd go for the intimate dinner, I think, Dave. What about this one? Are you are you more likely to get bogged down in detail or caught daydreaming? That's a hard one. I think I do both. I think more at the moment likely. I think at the moment I probably daydream. Right. Very good. <laughs> okay, what about this one? Making decisions, are you a slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on emotion? I don't make decisions no, I don't make decisions on emotion. I make decisions rationally, but not always not always from data. I I may do it from intuition but it's not emotion. And very last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route, book the hotels, know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? I have to be honest with this one, Dave. I've got small children. <laughs> we book the hotels in advance. What would you prefer to do? I would prefer to be <laughs> I'd prefer to be heading off on a road trip with my husband and no bookings. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe no children as well. And maybe no children as well. Jenny- <laughs> Don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell them that. Jenny Purdy. Huge figure in the Queensland resource sector and the Australian resource sector, CEO of Adani's Renewable Business. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Dave. And that was the very impressive Jenny Purdy. As I mentioned in my introduction, this episode was put together in partnership with the Women in Mining and Resource Queensland Networking Organisation. They do a wonderful job of bringing together people across the industry, capitalising on the experience and wisdom that people like Jenny can offer to the next generation of leaders. I really enjoyed the way Jenny described her journey through the different levels of large organisations. I liked the clear delineation she drew between being a technical operations leader, the changes of focus that come at a regional level, and finally, through to the executive level. 
As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Jenny on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. I'll also put some links to where you can find the magnificent work of the Women in Mining Networking Group. You'll find it all on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. You can contact me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the principles and theory of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.